Hello and welcome. This is an audio recording of an IFG live event. Hello everybody and welcome to the Institute for Government for this third in our series that we're delighted to be hosting in partnership with the Forum at Imperial College London. Uh, welcome to everybody who's made it to the room. Well done. And welcome to everybody online. I'm Jill Rutter. I'm a senior fellow at the Institute for Government. I'm going to introduce my panel in a second. Just a reminder, though, that if you want to post questions and you're not in the room, then use Slido. If you're in the room, you actually have the option of Slidoing or putting your hand up. Um, Slido is great because I can sort of arbitrate who's asking what. Uh, if you see a question that you uh, like, that is a slightly inferior version of the one you're about to ask, do upvote it rather than just replicate, because then we know where the real interest in the room lies. But anyway, so today we're talking about green skills. Uh, and apologies for my colleague Emma Norris, who's not with us and had hoped to be chairing this. But the rest of our panel has turned up, so that's extraordinary good news. So I am joined by... Sam Alvis. Sam is Head of Economy at Green Alliance, sitting on my far left. Then Ian O'Donnell, Net Zero and Special Projects Lead mm. at the Federation of Small Businesses. Might ask him a bit about his special projects if we don't have enough to talk about green skills, but I think we will. Uh, Alyssa Gilbert, Director of Policy and Translation at the Grantham Institute for Climate Change and the Environment. And last, but by no means least, our very own Tom Sass, uh, Associate Director of the Institute of Government and who leads our net zero work here. So what we're going to do is I'm going to pitch off with a few questions to our panel, but get your questions coming in. Tweet along, hashtag IFG net zero. Uh, we'll be tweeting from our IFG events account if you're not there. So remember to send your questions in and we will talk among ourselves uh, for the first bit and then we'll try and weave in all the questions that are emerging from the room. This is obviously a very good day to be doing this because the Climate Change Committee has just released their latest progress report, which I think uh, gives the verdict that the government's very good on ambition. In some areas, is actually got quite credible plans. Um, in other areas... I don't know whether the opposite of quite credible has quite incredible plans or no credible plans, but it's not so complimentary. But really interestingly, they have this concept where they divide the sort of things into what you need to do, uh, some of the policies, and then they have the key enablers, and skills is one of their key enablers. So it's a really important issue to get to grips with. And, of course, skills and just labour are incredibly big issues in the economy generally at the moment, even if we're not looking at net zero. So it's a really timely discussion. Uh, so let's kick off. Sam, I think Green Alliance did a recent report looking at uh, skills needed to support the net zero transition, and you identified a number of gaps. So what did your research find? Well, I think a number of gaps is, is putting it slightly mildly in that every, <laughs> there is a huge gap to get to net zero um, across the economy. And it, so it sounds like a big problem, but I actually think it's, it's quite a manageable one. What because we need to distinguish between actually places where we've, we're starting to get the right skills and you're right to raise the CCC. That's broadly where we have the right plan. So if you look at electric vehicles, that seems to be going okay in terms of our skill provision. But if you look at somewhere like home insulation, mm. where the government is, has no idea how it wants to insulate homes, make them warmer, make them cheaper to, to, for your energy bills... We have huge gaps in terms of heat pump installers, maintenance operatives, mm. insulators, and we are currently relying on sole trades people mm. rather than a full workforce. And actually, that, that link between plans and skill shortages is we found almost a perfect correlation between the bigger the emissions gap and emissions reduction required, the bigger the skills shortages, because we need more people to do the work that is going to bring down emissions. But the reason I think that's a manageable, pro pro manageable problem is actually 80% of the people that are currently in the workforce will still be in the workforce in 2030. It's really a, a current workforce problem. So that comes down to retraining the current workforce. 
And for large amounts of people, their work will stay broadly the same. They will adapt to new technologies, new business processes Mm. alongside the decarbonisation. It's not going to cause mass unemployment, mass disruption Mm. like we saw in the 70s and 80s, for example. Mm. Um, So I think what we, the the onus needs to be then on how do we equip people currently in work to learn new things on the job and convince them that security prosperity for their work comes from moving into greener areas. So, Ian, um, so Sam's given this quite sort of rosy picture, (laughs) maybe a picture of opportunities in the skills area, and all you need is to persuade people to take a bit of time out, retrain, and then there's this huge, big horizon of new opportunities that's going to open up for them. So you represent small businesses in the Federation of Small Businesses, you know, is that a realistic vision that small businesses can do that? I mean, can your members actually get people to take up opportunities now? I think, you know, you alluded to many of the deliverers in, in some of these spaces are sole traders or very small businesses. Mm. And there's two challenges there. One at the moment, they're strapped. So they're, they're strapped for cash, they're strapped for time. And so taking time out to go and reskill, retrain involves a cost to your business, even if that training is offered mm. for free. So there's a real challenge around how do you um, reskill, retrain. It needs to be demand-led. So unless there's a clear demand there, they're just not going to go for it. So unless, as you say, there's a, sometimes some great ambitions, but unless there's a clear strategy for delivery and how it's actually going to happen and therefore how they can get commercial advantage mm. by providing into that mm. space, at the moment they're just going to wait and see uh, because they, they don't have the budget or the time to go and do that reskilling. And in terms of, a, you know, mm. taking people on board to, you know, broaden their impact, mm. there's a real problem across the board, not just in green skills, around recruitment, the skills, um, that whole area is a massive challenge for all of our members across the board. So the green skills is just another area where we're saying, great, but we can't get the people. We can't get the skills. We're struggling for money. We're struggling for time. So if you could get the people, you might come onto a list here. <laughs> if you get the people, are there sort of training providers, um, further education and then maybe higher education as well for the sort of top end of the skills training, are they actually providing the right courses, the right training? So if, the, if people have the time and the money and the inclination, can they go and find what they need? Well, we still need more of it. We definitely don't have enough at the moment. Um, so what is positive is that the higher education sector, mm. so I work at a university, mm. are working closely with the further education mm. sector and understand that there needs to be really close linkages there and a sort of a, a kind of sharing of responsibility. You, you do this, this is your kind of natural audience, this is our kind of natural audience. Um, so that, that's good. Um, so there's, but there, there absolutely needs to be more provision. I think the tricky bit coming from the higher education side is the higher education mm. sector is really used to serving people at a certain stage in their life for a certain period of time and then that's it mm-hmm. so there's been there is and there's a steady flourishing of new mm-hmm. master's programs mm-hmm. and they're extremely successful so we have a climate change management and finance master's course at imperial and it's now the it's the master's program in our business school that has the best employability credentials. And so who goes to that and what jobs do they end up doing so that's a, that's an interesting example it, it, it that kind of thing is people going to professional services those people go into the finance sector but they go into the finance sector with the kind of skills they might have got from business school mm. plus an understanding of the science of climate change uh, plus some some other analytical tools so they they go in with some traditional skills plus Mm. so this is the the, the, one of the things about green skills is that what we hope is that people will have some green or climate skills they can apply whatever their job is Um, and some of those are technical like I just kind of said understanding Mm. the climate science and understanding how to Mm. use that in financial sector analytics Mm. some of it is another type of skill set which universities and perhaps other education <laughs> institutions aren't so used to providing, which is different ways of thinking. So mm. actually you need to be quite flexible in your mindset mm. and, and, and adaptable and willing to pick up new technology. Mm. And, and giving people those soft skills is important. And then at a place like Imperial, where we teach a lot of people technical mm. skills, these are really mm. important. But we also need to pe- teach people a bit about social science. How do people make their decisions? Mm. Um, and, you know, going on to the kind of boiler installer example, mm. if, you're, if you've got, you know, you're, you're refitting your home heating mm. and you might be tempted because you've heard something mm. about low carbon heating, but you're a bit nervous, you'll, who will you trust? You'll trust the, the, the installer who's coming and you'll say to them, well, what do you think? Have you done this before? And they'll think, well... 
mm, I don't know how to do this. But, but if they do know how to do it, they might say, oh, I've only really done it once. You know, stick with what, stick you, with what you know. And, and that relationship, training people to think in different ways and be willing to understand the scale of the risk of doing something different is also something we need to build into our education system. And I think there's a yeah. key differentiation there that you've alluded to between there's two sets of skills we're talking about. Mm. There's the skills that are needed in business to allow them to change mm. and transition to a carbon mm. zero economy. Mm. And there's also the, the hard skills and the, the technical mm. skills to do the delivery of what's needed to make that happen. So we need the people who can do carbon accounting and all that goes with that, mm. but we also need the people who can put the solar panels on the roofs, who can put the, the, the um, air pump systems in, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. And one of the challenges um, is you know, the, the more consultancy mm. skills, very well mm. catered for by FEHE, mm. But those other skills, those are people who've already got level three qualifications. And our current system is very good at saying, if you want to go up to level four, but actually what we're saying is we want another level three in a different area. Mm-hmm. And often the support and the methodologies mm-hmm. around that don't exist. We need a transition of skills rather than upskilling. So I'm quite interested. I've just... Tom, I will let you in in a second, but <laughs> you're like the home team. So, uh, <laughs> But I'm just quite interested. I mean, we did see quite a big transition around solar panels, which nobody presumably had installed solar panels before the year 2000, and then we suddenly had a massive incentive and we got a lot of solar panel installation. So actually, how did we fill the gap on, or is it very easy, it's just like, you know, basically roof tile, solar panel, same thing. I mean, how actually did that happen? Because did Government have a big program to do it, or...? or? Well, there's a demand created by government, by incentives, and there goes there is a a whole other discussion in and of itself around longevity of incentives. Mm. So you've created demand, therefore business will respond to demand. Mm. We're we're a demand-led economy on the whole. So there was a demand there, so therefore business went, there's an opportunity space, we'll reskill into that space because there was, you know, money to be made out of it. Most of the skills, as we've mentioned, are transitionary. So it's not there's a a whole new skill set. It's just taking a set of skills and repurposing them. Mm. However, in terms of overall numbers done, mm. that wasn't that big in terms of the overall challenge of climate change. Yeah. And if we want to make the level of change that is needed mm. to achieve the ambition of mm. the government, we're going to need more people, not just reskilling of some people. We're also going to need more people in some areas, and that's one of the big challenges. And to reskill someone you know, who's a gas fitter to install a heat pump, are we talking... A week? Are we talking a month? Are we talking a year? Are we talking three years? How long does it take to take a gas fitter and make them... Good question. I mean, the, to the, fill a heat pump, it depends partly pump. on their level of experience and how, you know, you mentioned about creative yeah. thinking. Yeah. Some people are very good at reskilling and adapting, yeah. others people less so. I'm alluding more to here. I think most of that can be a relatively speedy process. Yeah. The question is, is actually we probably need double the number of people as we've currently got yeah. in gas installers. Where are they coming from? What industries are losing people and don't have demand anymore? How do we transition them into a completely new? That's going to be a longer process. It also comes down to how you think you want to install a heat pump. So you could go with the heat and building strategy, which is the octopus business model of saying, we're going to do every heat pump exactly the same in every house, in which case it's not a long training programme because you're doing the same thing over and over again. If you're looking for more bespoke, harder to fit houses, local trace people, then the training programme to understand how you adapt this to many different forms of housing is a lot more in depth. I think that's a really good okay. point because often the, the skills mm. question is almost downstream of some of the policy and delivery choices in a sense because if the government doesn't know how it's going to do something, whether that's homes or indeed how much of a mm. particular industry like battery manufacturing mm. we're going to domesticate, mm. how can it know how many people we need to train in those areas? So it's quite difficult for the businesses to try and judge this until we have a, a clearer sense of some of those policy gaps that the CCC was so, talking about. So that's what I was going to, actually going to ask you, Tom, is you know, the government did have its Green Jobs Task Force, uh, which reported, I think, last year. Uh, do you get a sense that the government has grasped the scale of this and actually their role, in a sense, of clarifying a bit of the demand side? Mm-hmm. We then talk about you know, the supply side. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I think it has acknowledged the scale of the Green Jobs Challenge and... <laughs> When you see sort of ministers, and in particular mm. the prime minister, talking about this, one of their favourite things to say about net zero is green jobs, green jobs, green. You know, that, that's what they like to talk about. Um, but I don't, th- and they did set up the green jobs task mm. force. Um, but I don't think they've yet 
well, they haven't yet published a, a green mm. jobs action plan, mm. which I think, as the CCC mm. rightly says, is the big thing that's mm. missing. So we've got this report from the task force, which is a kind of interesting bit of background mm. type thinking. It sort of sets out mm. some of the kind of considerations in this area. It's not mm. a program of action. Mm. Um, and then you sort of think the really big missed opportunity actually was in the levelling up white paper, which really mm. didn't touch on net zero much mm. at all. That was the government's real plan for economic transformation. It had a lot in there on skills, didn't have a lot in there on green mm. skills. Um, so I think what you probably need to see in that sort of green skills action plan, mm. which the CCC calls for, definitely is a, a bigger sort of funding and policy offer on skills, mm. like Alyssa says. Mm. And I think you can look at the sort of range of things the government has come forward with apprenticeship levy, lifetime skills offer and things like that. But actually some of those are quite narrow and and not sort of available to a really wide range of people. And I think you'd also need to start thinking about targeting more specifically at some of the areas we're talking about, like home retrofit and things like that. Um, I think a second thing is around data. Mm. Actually in that action plan, you'd want a really clear view of the quantity and type of skills you're going to need across the country. And I don't think at the moment the government quite has that. And then a third thing and final thing, I think, is just this kind of coordination and a cross-government issue. Because I think at the moment what we're seeing is individual sectoral plans come out with a kind of small section on the skills requirement and dependency for that particular sector or that particular area. What we haven't got is a kind of cross-government view of skills, green skills across Mm. the economy and what you'd need to sort of make that work in a joined-up way. Um, Some questions coming in now. Thanks very much for everybody doing questions. Remember to upvote. uh, Remember to moderate as well, own moderator. Um, A quick question to Alyssa, just from Mike, who's given his name, so I'm definitely going to ask his question. Um, Would it help if any of this was actually in A-level syllabuses? I mean, do you think that teaching net zero at A-level, we've always had long discussions about teaching climate change as part of geography and stuff like that. Would it help if people were socialised into some of these things? He suggested on it, so we need people knowing how to install solar PV. Not sure my everyone's taught me how to install anything, <laughs> uh, but anyway, but that was clearly a uh, yes. wrong selection. I mean, yes. The answer is yes. I think we need everybody to come out of school understanding this challenge to some degree. Yeah. It doesn't need to be a huge level in depth challenge, but it just needs to be lodged there somewhere in their head. And equally at universities, so you can mm. go through a university degree, mm. many, almost all university degrees, mm. and never think about this issue, or indeed a small number of other perhaps globally important challenge mm. issues. And if you and if you had that as a kind of core set, mm. then you could apply whatever it is you're going to do, whether you're going to be a scientist or you're going to be an mm. engineer or you're going to be someone in finance or someone in politics and government mm. who mm. mostly don't have science or engineering degrees, mm. then you would have that mm. that bit of basis that you would come back to. And although, I mean, we, we talk about the challenge around skills, and I'm a broad optimist mm. about this too, I mm. think we'll be able to navigate mm. this. What is good is that the attitudes, we don't have to worry about attitudes. Mm. So in, in terms of people coming out, what we want them to come out of their, of their secondary school education with is a bit of more knowledge about mm. the issue. But we don't need to change their hearts. Though the hearts and attitudes of those people will already lead them to think, how can I do something with my job about this. Mm. And if it's handed to them or it's easy for them to grasp, mm. those people will do it. In a way, I think it's the reskilling that's much, the people who are already working who are short of time that you mentioned. Okay, okay let's come on to reskilling. If we're going to fill the reskilling gap, I'm going to come back to the questions in a second. If we want to fill the reskilling gap, um, let's go to Sam and then I'm going to try Ian whether it's realistic. What would you want? If the government's serious about reskilling and says, okay, we've got a decade to reskill the labour force to be ready to do mass installation of this, you know, manage this EV, manage a world in which uh, increasing numbers of cars are EVs, so you'll have to, you know, fix them rather than fixed ICEs and stuff like that. You know, actually, what does the government need to put in place for a reskilling strategy? Is clarity about what's needed enough and then the market will follow like it did with solar? So does the government need to intervene? I think there's two additional things. And starting off with what Tom said is mm. the right idea. So we need to have this picture of what government thinks are skills and where it's a strategic national mm. priority to boost skills in that mm. area. That informs education institutions, it informs businesses to say, we'll put on an extra course because we see this is going to be quite good for us. But the the two things government needs to do initially and on top of that is one, it needs to lower the cost of training. 
for both the individuals and for businesses. At the moment, investing in physical capital, you can get 130% tax relief from the Treasury for, through the super deduction, which is lovely. But nothing does for investing. It does expire invest- next year. It does though, expire it? next year. But what we should be doing is looking at how can we make it cheaper for businesses to invest in their staff and the soft skills that we need to take the economy forward. And then on the flip side of that, we did, we did 10 focus groups last year with people who would need reskilling in the, in the net zero economy. And their number one concern was personal security, financial, economic, can they still provide for their households? And that, that needs two things. One, it needs government to convince them it's, this isn't a political gimmick. Green jobs is not just a slogan. There's, there's content behind it. And then against your green jobs action plan, whatever you want to call it, where you think it's really important and we've got a big gap, pay the costs of that training. And not just the cost of that training, you need to give people maintenance loans so they can just take the decision and it's not going to hurt them at the bottom line. Ian? Yeah, so one of our proposals has been around Help to Green. So we've had the Help to Grow initiative. You know, how do we help small micro-businesses get going with this? Um, A straightforward accessible, because some of the the longer-term... Um, tax incentive type ones don't necessarily work for a micro or small business, but a straightforward system like Help to Grow, implemented as Help to Green, would be great. And so what's um, that just grant? So providing a grant to, to get that training, to for the and crucially for the business. So, so Help to Grow is primarily owned at business owners. And if we want to get businesses going for this, we first of all want to get the business owners mm. on board with it. So we need to make it possible for them to access this in a way that's affordable for them. Bear in mind all the other stuff that a micro mm. business, you know, the business mm. owner is responsible for everything. Mm. They don't have HR directors or anything. Mm. So how do we enable that? Uh, so I think that's one area. So there's that helping businesses mm. to adapt and change. When it comes to the wider skill piece about actually doing some of the stuff, we, we need to, um, as you mentioned, it's not just about the cost of the training, it's about the cost of the time for that. So how do we look at that for a micro business? But also there's a big challenge here. If we take electric cars, EVs, mm. I, I was taught, I'm, I'm in the West Midlands, the, the, we were given the um, information by work manufacturing group, there's about 50% increase required mm. in electrical engineers and developers mm. to deliver the change to EVs. Well, also in the West Midlands is Silicon Valley area, you know, a lot of the gaming industry is based in the West Midlands. If all of those people go to EVs, our gaming industry dies. Uh, so how do we, how do we not ensure that we don't just lose people to the green skills and actually other areas of business are decimated as a result? Because the reality at the moment, we're at almost 100% employment. Mm-hmm. And so if you take skills from one area and move them to another area you're leaving a gap somewhere else. So there's a wider piece here about just overall access to resource. I think that's a yeah. can I just come in mm. on? Um, just in terms of framing this green mm. skills challenge within the wider labour market challenge that we have in the economy at the moment, because I think we've got a few things where, you know, we've got, you know, we're up for employment, we haven't got very many um, sort of vacancies left at the moment but also with Brexit you've got real challenges in sectors like construction Mm. so before the pandemic the construction sector was already saying around net zero that they Mm. had a sort of acute and persistent Mm. skills gap and that's becoming much worse actually as a result of not being able to bring people here as easily as we were able to before so I think there's a real challenge and and I think the other big one is is sort of digitalization Mm. Uh, automation as well is going to have big changes coming down. And post-COVID, we've mm. seen a number of people leave the workforce seemingly mm. permanently at the sort of high, old, older end of the workforce. So I think what you'd hope to see in that sort of government mm. green skills action plan is a really coherent view of how this transition fits in around all the other headwinds mm. that the UK economy is facing and sort of what are the measures and what are the trade-offs that are happening at different areas. I mean, the slight worry is this begins to sound like sort of national plan for the labour force, which, you know, it's quite interesting sort of balance. I mean, you know, how big a role does government have in sort of doing things? And is, you know, and how, you know, it sounds a bit like directed labour, that this is where we want people and things like that. You know, does that work? I mean, well, I, mean, I, I go back to the point that you made earlier, yeah. which I, I would agree with. These things are demand-led. Yeah. So I think, I think government's role is to kind of set out a clear, coherent and consistent path. Yeah. I mean, that's maybe too many things to ask for, but I mean, a path maybe (laughs) Um, that they're committed to that will set in train the demand aspect. 
And then there's all kinds of different ways that I think we'll see the <clears throat> skills provision development <clears throat> flourish, and we'll see some of the people who can provide these services start to realize there's demand and start to seek the training. So the higher education sector, the further <clears throat> education sector, are already innovating around <clears throat> what to provide in this space together, and and providing sort of later <clears throat> on how can we access <clears throat> skilling up, reskilling people <clears throat> later on. Particularly with a place-based focus, so you mentioned mm. leveling up, universities and in, mm. in, who are in places where there's lots of offshore mm. wind development are thinking about skills in those areas and reskilling people from other offshore activities. Mm. So those things will flourish. So in a sort of more hands-off way, I think the key role for government is mm. clear signals yeah. that set and train the demand for these countries. And should the government take into account? potential labour blockages when it does its pathways and timelines? Does it sort of need to think, well, actually, you know, we are in a labour-constrained economy, at least for the time being, and therefore we need to take into account that? Or do we just say, well, actually, this is what we need for net zero, this is as fast as we can go, technologically constrained, and the labour thing will sort itself out, and we want to be a high-wage economy? And you, you, people you have an important opinion. I have an yeah. opinion. Um. I, I, well, I was just going to comment about one of our challenges. Yeah. We have an increasingly ageing workforce. If you look at also the, the demographic, which is perhaps less convinced sometimes about climate change, that tends to also be towards the older end of the workforce. If we want to win hearts and minds and um, perhaps encourage them to stay longer in work and to look at reskilling, we need to win their hearts and minds and perhaps that would be more pragmatic hearts and minds which goes back to your comment about creating demand whereby yep you're going to get a good job into your 60s because actually this is a consistent path forward rather than at the moment some of those people have been badly burned because maybe they were involved in the solar thing and then two years later it disappeared and their job disappeared again. Mm. So we need that consistency and we need to win some of those people back to say, don't exit the labour market just yet because we need you to deliver. I think some you might be a few months too late, actually, <laughs> as far as we can see from what's going on in, in the labour market. So, uh, Deborah, um, a slightly technical question here from things. And if anyone wants to ask a question in the audience, then put your mitt up. Um, anonymous, thanks, Anonymous, is asking saying it's tricky for awarding organisations to develop lower-level qualifications given the current review and moratorium. Um, I don't know whether that's an issue. Ian, is that a big issue? It says government needs to give greater freedom to develop in this space. Is the government getting in the way? Yes. Um, <laughs> so what does the government need to do? So first, first thing in government is always get out of the way where you're making things worse. What does the government One need of the do? big things we've heard a lot from members, in, particularly in this space, is about... We know what's needed. We know what reskilling is needed. But at the moment, looking at apprenticeships, looking at things like that, we're having to force it rather than find one that's actually appropriate that matches our need. And one of the demands is actually just, just let us get on with creating the right type of training with an outcome qualification. But we shape that far more than a prescriptive qualification because the nature of this area of the economy it's rapidly changing mm. and the problem with traditional skills create uh, uh, accreditation creation is it's quite a long process mm. and by the time that process is finished the demand has changed and so business just said just get out of our way let us create and adapt things that meet the need um, that we need to to allow people who rightly want qualifications but also just need to be able to deliver the skills that are needed for that business to get on with doing what they need to do. But as Alyssa was saying, one of the sort of things I want is an assurance that, you know, Ian coming to fit my heat pump knows what Ian is doing. So are we clear that we actually have good enough accreditation that people are, are competent with some of these sort of new technologies that give me the assurance as a slightly nervy, unconvinced consumer that I trust you to fit quite an expensive piece of kit when I've read, you know, Daily Mail telling me it's all a nightmare and a bunch of cowboys are about to come into my house. I think do we a, need to do more on that? I think there's a difference, isn't there, between having the, the skills and the knowledge of how to fit something and also the processes and assurances to make sure that what I do is good. Yeah. Um, and actually, they're two slightly different things. And, yeah, it's good for businesses to make sure, you know, we've got things like ISO 9001, et cetera, which, mm. which help a business make sure they've got good mm. processes in place, follow good practice. What we can't do is be too prescriptive about, oh, you must have this skill. 
because actually that skill is now changed. It's this skill that's needed. And so all I've got is a qualification that's taught me the wrong skill for what I'm now having to do. So we need to have, as you said, about flexibility and in imagination and innovation in terms of how I'm approaching problems for businesses. So, Alyssa, do you see a proliferation of sort of, you know, people adding green to the title of their courses and the way in which government used yeah. to add that to everything. <laughs> uh, when I was working on sustainability, just as market it, and you say, well, that's, that's pretty low, great. I mean, you know. I mean, yes, yes, but, but students are very discerning. Mm. I mean, these courses, the courses that we offer aren't free. Um, and no, so, someone, someone's asked, can you do something about the cost of your courses? So, yeah, yeah <laughs> no, I mean, I can't. Yeah. Um, definitely be on my pay grade. But, um, but, but people are quite specific. Yeah. They look actually quite closely into mm. the content of the course. So, I, I just a, a name on top of it won't achieve So, you, it think, you think sort of cream is rising and the. Yeah, I think, I think people courses, are. Being so, we don't need to worry about that. And That's, but actually, what we, like, yeah. again, to go back to the focus groups we ran, like, yeah. younger people who knew what they wanted to do in their career, particularly like resource yeah. and dentists and nurses, mm. and they were like, we know this is a really important thing for us mm. to have on our CV. Mm. Like, I really want some green skills because it's going to put me at the top mm. of the pack. But co- they can't find a course that has how to reduce waste on your hospital ward. It's those additional things alongside your standard course rather than just slapping green that's like a bit of a USP for your university or further education mm. organisation. I think it's really That's cool. a really interesting point. So, yeah. so me and some of my colleagues, mm. we deliver occasional courses in the medical school at Imperial to people on environmental stuff. And, and we're getting more and more demand mm. for these little pockets yeah. of teaching people who, they're a, a completely yeah. vocational path, yeah. right? Um, and there's more and more demand for people in those kind of sectors. And does Imperial treat that as an option or is that part of the core training? Um, that, at the moment, is part of an option. That, but if the demand, it's again, like there's more demand for it. That's, that's really interesting. Someone here has asked whether we should give people incentives to do green courses. That's probably based on costing 31800 to do it, so people can't do it. Um, let's go to the audience. So Penny is wandering with a mic. Let's start here and then we'll come down here. Yeah. Thank help. you, Jill. Hugh or Lloyd. Um, a couple of observations and one sort of test question, you might say. So the first observation, it feels like anybody over 40 should get some systems in the thinking experience or qualification uh, because if you don't understand systems in the broad sense and in the particular sense you will always be focused on solution x or y or z uh, that leads me into you know the future of your building and your home will not be a heat pump it will be an energy system and the heat pump might be a part of it mm. but it might not don't focus on the bit of kit focus on the functional thing so some systems practice but Jill you were touching on um, you almost got to national service I think so people have been talking about demand led Mm. yet net zero and climate change are not demand led they are physical processes that will destroy the planet if we wait for demand to materialize and give us the courses Mm. that we think we need or that we will need that might take too long so you're in a sense, war footing for climate change might actually require a national green skills service where, you know, my dad was in, did his national mm. service and he learned skills about electrical engineering, as it happens. So where would we panellists put ourselves on that? How much of this does need to be pushed? Because it's a mandated government action. It's against a physical process that's affecting the world, which won't go away just because we don't respond to it. How far down the road to national service, which would then pay for your training time as well as your training? Thank you. Okay, well, let's have a very quick round of answers on uh, on Hal's sort of aspiration to. Uh, so, it's a test so, so do we need a sort of national? I mean, I know the various times we've tried to do these. I mean, like the Australian Energy Efficiency Scheme, uh, which is part of their uh, GFC response, was deemed to be quite a big setback for um, cause of energy efficiency, Sam. Yeah, so I think you talk about the urgency that we need to do this mm. stuff, and I, I think getting a government to make people, this government to make people do work is probably waiting too long to get the people into the work. Um, we tried a couple of times in the sort of green recovery, mm. there was a lot of talk mm. about an environmental service mm. and giving uh, young people experience in tackling sort of the biodiversity crisis, and it just didn't really take off. But I do think if, if government says we have a massive strategic mm. need in this area and we will cover all the costs of training and getting you into it and look at this lovely, fantastic, long-term, secure, good conditions job you have at the end, potentially unionised, um, that is enough of a pull to get people in. Okay. 
Ian? I would say that the, yes, you, the demand because people perhaps believe it the right mm. thing to do may not be there. The demand from a perspective as a business owner, if you don't do this, there's fines mm. or um, you won't be apply, able to apply for procurement mm. opportunities, all of those sort of things generate significant demand. Um, so, and if you look at the, the house building, etc., mm. then again, you know, how are we going to be penalised? And right now, there's a demand mm. being created by the fact my energy bill is rising. Mm. And so I'm looking at ways to reduce my energy bill. So I think I think the demand is there. Um, we just need to get out, get out of the way of it and make sure it's consistent demand. Yeah, I mean, just yeah. to kind of make sure I express what I said about demand appropriately. I mean that the mm. government should make ambitious mm. demands that are in line mm. with net zero. They should be saying mm. that we're going to retrofit every single house mm. in the UK in the next 10 years. That is a clear demand mm. signal that will lead to serious upskilling and training if it's certain that that's going to happen. That's what we need to do because the issue demands it. Mm. And that will lay in process those other things. Tom? I think what we're seeing at the moment in some ways is the sort of limitations. So I think you can do net zero mm. in, in either way, right? You can do it in a very market-based direction mm. or you can do it in a more kind of state-led sort of state investment, public investment direction. I think at the moment what we're seeing is the limitations of a kind of very market-based approach mm. this government has set out, but without sufficiently clear market incentives mm. and, and market signals. We've seen those market signals in some areas and at a very high level, mm. you know, the sort of 2035 mm. target for different things. Mm. We've not seen it in key areas like housing, you know. So that makes it really difficult to work backwards through what the skills you, you need and what the business mm. is and what the training providers are going to do and things like that. I wouldn't perhaps go as far as the sort of national service route. I don't want to sort of make up an IFG position on the spot (laughs) on on that. Um, uh, But I would say Mm. that I think, you know, in somewhere like home retrofit Mm. and and home heating, we probably are going to see and need to see a Mm. much more interventionist approach Mm. from the government to actually get it moving at the speed that we need. I mean, should the government be setting out sort of prior? I mean, there's sort of a question here about whether the government should be setting out sort of priorities that this is where we're looking for first. This is maybe where we could, we'll go at slightly, you know, slightly slower time. So at least sort of FE providers, for example, who are looking to sort of change their training, sort of know, well, actually, I should be focusing first on trying to give this training. I don't know. I mean, I think the tricky thing about this issue, as, yeah. as, the, as you yeah. raised, is that it's urgent we need to do it all yeah. now. So it's, it's hard to say this is more important now yeah. than another thing. I think we, but what, I, I do think that this issue about place is really important. Yeah. So it could be possible to say, in this bit of the country, yeah. in this bit of the yeah. UK, we actually really need land management skills. Mm-hmm. Because with certain land management skills, we'll be able to do more yeah. sustainable agriculture yeah. that's, that, that's yeah. more adaptive and yeah. more mitigation. And actually, in this part, we need... The kind of skills that we need for offshore wind. And here mm. we need EV skills. You mm. mentioned kind of the Midlands. Mm. That could be really helpful because mm. what you do see also, it's, it's quite common for HE and FE organizations mm. to work very closely with employers mm. um, and with local government in areas. So they create mm. this community and together that, that combination with a strong local skill, mm. local skills okay. signal can help. Can I, I mean, just add, Joe? Yeah. So I, th- I think just on that, I think if you think about where the UK economy is traditionally quite strong, you know, we've got a very strong mm. academic university mm. sector. We've had this whole move from manufacturing mm. into services. We've got a strong financial sector. We've got a very strong city still. Mm. Um, so you can look at those areas mm. and you can think, actually, we're probably going to do quite well in terms mm. of, you know, some of those softer mm. skills we've talked about, making sure people have green accounting skills, making all of that stuff. I think where the government should probably focus its efforts is where we've traditionally been weaker, which is on things like technical education, and on thinking about some of the kind of, you know, skills needed for some of these really big physical transitions that we're going to need to see this decade. Um, because that's where actually, mm. at the moment, leaving it to the market with a slightly muddy set of incentives isn't really working. Just on the, also in terms of who do you get to do what mm. first, one of the issues we're, we're spotting is that there's a tendency sometimes for government to go for the big wins, mm. which means big business, you know, if they big company makes a change, mm. it can have a bigger impact. Mm. But 97% of businesses in the UK are SMEs. Mm. And so if we want to make an overall big impact, mm. we need to bring all of them on board. And that means they need to be dealt with and looked after in a different way and supported and incentivised to do so. And at the moment, there's a tendency, oh, well, we'll get a big win over here, which will make a you know, nice sounding yeah. sound bite. But actually, if we want the overall big impact that we need we need to be everybody on board on this journey. But is that government's task? Because, you know, your big company, by and large, has a long supply chain. We're all into supply chains. It's the year of the supply chain. Understanding that, actually, Brexit helped with that as well. But, 
But, you know, will smaller companies get assistance from companies they supply to in meeting standards? Because companies need to give assurance that, you know... It's one of the things that we're sort of saying actually, you know, is, needs to be a part of the solution, mm. which is if you're a bigger company, you've got a supply chain, you might have the skills, you're employing mm. the people, yeah. you're employing the, the, the carbon calculators, etc. Yeah. people, rather than sort of just being, beating your supply chain with a stick, how about yeah. helping them on the journey? But I do think government needs to be a part of that solution as well. There's, okay. been, there's yeah. been some good examples actually in the past yeah. with, with the supermarket retail sector yeah. and them looking at their supply chain mm. and then engaging with the people who are their growers mm. on things like sustainability mm. to enable them to, rather than saying, mm. here are our standards as a retailer, oh, I'm sorry, you can't supply us anymore. Mm. They engaged in a way that could enable them to remain a supplier. Okay, we've got another question here in the audience. Yes. Hi, um, Emma Wilcox from Society for the Environment. We've talked a lot about um, the volume of provision that's required and the volume of... Uh, skills uh, training, mm-hmm. but not talk about quality. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of companies, particularly small mm-hmm. businesses who are reskilling, they wouldn't go to the HE or FE sector, they'd go to the private sector for training. So just interested in the panel's view on how we can protect small businesses from uh, working with training providers to make sure we've got good quality, particularly when we know we need to upskill a lot of trainers who also don't exist at the moment. Okay, who'd like to pitch in at that first? Alyssa? I don't know. I don't have an expert answer on that, but I think, I think one of the things that came up before, which I think could really help, is, is collaboration with business. So looking for good accreditation where you can, mm-hmm. if you're if not going to HE and FE, because it is a really high risk. You don't want people mm-hmm. to waste that precious time and money on a course that's no good. Um, but I think, I think working with businesses so that they also kind of accredit their business. Mm-hmm. So for example, mm-hmm. if you want to install, I shouldn't probably name a brand, but let's say a Hitachi heat pump, mm-hmm. right? It's in their interest that the people who are installing give people confidence in their product and install it correctly. And if you could go to a course where you had the stamp of approval of a provider, I think that's a nice way to work in concert and provide quality. Yeah, I think one of the areas that I think actually when he talks about product type intervention, mm-hmm. then actually that absolutely mm-hmm. can work and does work. Where I think there's going to be a bigger challenge is around the whole, blue, you know, for businesses looking to adapt and change and needing the consultant mm-hmm. and the training mm-hmm. to allow them to do mm-hmm. so, there's a big opportunity for blue plating here. Oh, you need to do mm-hmm. all of this as well. Yeah. No, you don't. <laughs> but in order for me to um, charge the big consultancy fee that I want to charge, I'm going to say you need to do all of this as well. So I think there's, we need to make sure that this space, being an emergent space, doesn't end up with the inevitable problems of emergent spaces where people are a bit unsure, but they go to the consultant who blue plates the issue and you end up with doing far more than you actually need to do. I mean, we have a sort of plea from the heart here from Sarah Coffey who's saying, how will it be regulated? I'm currently staring at a hole in my ceiling from a cowboy plumber. How do we keep the green incentives regulated? Lots of us can relate to that as a, uh, as a problem in getting sort of people in. So I mean, I think I mean we have to remember this. We're not creating brand new sectors, right? Yeah, yeah. we're greening yeah. existing sectors. So where there are sectors that there yeah. are already cowboys and mm. bad training organisations, they're going to. We need to do something about that. That's a kind maybe, of separate. Maybe, issue. maybe we can solve two problems. <laughs> two problems at once. Yes, you've got another question back there. Thanks very much, Alex Luke from Onward here. Um, I wanted to ask the panel about what we've seen in energy efficiency policy recently, where with the Green Deal and the Green's Home uh, Green Homes Grant. There were many cases of installers and suppliers retraining um, after the policies were announced, who then had sort of the rug pulled under them um, a bit when those schemes uh, schemes were scrapped. And what's the risk that those past policy failures could undermine the transition and the skills transition in energy efficiency policy? And I guess there's also a a sort of chicken and egg question with energy efficiency specifically, um, in that we clearly need something Mm. to incentivise demand Um, but then we need the installers and mm. providers in sufficient numbers to then meet that demand when it happens. So what needs to happen first? Yeah, I'm going I'm to link that to a question that I've got online from Claire, who's asking, do you expect the Exchequer to come up with a fully fed plan on green skills qualifications the autumn budget? I'm not going to ask you to predict that, because, uh, <laughs> uh, but I'm going to ask you, if you were going to do that, you know, the government has now finally sort of woken up to the fact that energy efficiency might help with people's very high bills. Yeah. So actually, if you were focusing between the next mini budget, which probably be, you know, not too far off or whatever, uh, or the autumn budget, what would you want the government to be saying to actually 
build a decent energy efficiency <laughs> sector? What lessons should it take from Green Deal, <laughs> Green Homes Grant, SAM? So I think there's, there's two answers to this. Um, and tre- Treasury are basically looking at the moment. It's like, how many policy levers can we pull to deliver energy efficiency? And there is one is that you need to complete the entire able-to-pay market, right? Like, you have to have some sort of incentive for people to do that. But I think you're right in that the sector and individuals are badly scarred by two massive policy failures, not to say that the Treasury are also massively scarred and really wary of getting their fingers burnt for a third time. So the way I would look at it is... How do we build those supply chains up now quickly so that they are credible and ready to be deployed to the able to pay sector? Just complete social housing. Like it, the local authority delivery scheme and the social housing decarbonisation fund is, is working and it's working very well and the government are rightly proud of it. Get it done. Just finish every single one. And although those homes are not quite as needy as some as like the private rented sector, if you finish it, you have this massive everywhere-based... Um, supply chain that you can then go okay we've got some slightly harder mm. we've got individuals we've brought the cost down hopefully mm. and using them yeah i mean the key thing is around longevity of plans so you know we don't want the one year two year scheme we want this is a 10 year scheme if you've got that surety of scheme then as we've already mentioned businesses mm. will adapt and change and, and provide service into that also, one of the things I think we need to just on the rented accommodation, this mm. includes offices. Mm. There is actually a challenge sometimes around the business or whatever that's mm. in an office not actually being the ones who have the control. So they desperately want to lower their energy bill, but actually they don't own the building. And sometimes even finding out who does own the building can be quite challenging. But we're not even allowed to turn our own heating off. So. <laughs> and then on, on top of that, we have a rate system whereby you are disincentivized in some cases. They have created some exclusions. They've made that. some changes. So heat, heat pumps specifically are being excluded from this but as somebody you know was mentioned from the audience mm. it's looking at overall changes to your building and we need to make sure that the rate system doesn't disincentivize and i know we've slightly off the topic of skills yeah. here but it is that we if we're going to generate demand we need to make sure we remove all the barriers to demand as well and those are just some examples of barriers to demand Alyssa, we've got a really interesting question here from anonymous which I always assume is just a whole bunch of people in the business department putting in their sort of <laughs> questions they're trying to answer today. So you could help Anonymous with this one. Um, we talk a lot about reskilling the sort of labour force, but do we actually have this untapped bunch of people who can teach these skills, or is that a big constraint that we need to be dealing with first? So it's a big question. Yes, we, we not everybody knows what they need to know. I think that I think someone did a, did an analysis like seventy five percent of secondary school teachers or I think maybe mm. primary and secondary school mm. teachers who would like to teach this don't feel like yeah. they know And what about, what about trainers in FE colleges? Right, exactly, exactly. So we need to kind of mobilize some way to support those people with some kind of continuous professional development. I mean, I think there are ways. We've developed some, some online courses, um, and there are sort of ways that you can take the knowledge of a few people and mm. share it in a way that can, can start to become helpful to those people. And is that actually what we should be starting now to sort of make sure we have that sort of, you know, skilled up training workforce before we even get into it? Yeah, the... we should. We should. I mean, one of my colleagues has been invited into an inset day in the secondary school mm. um, next term, which is a nice way to do it. So taking a bit of people's time to start building that. Put those 12 year olds to work in. Yeah. You no, know, that's a bit, <laughs> a, bit 19th I century. I think it sort of comes back to a, a much longer term yeah. failure yeah. on sort of adult training mm. and skills policy mm. in the UK over decades, really, because you can't you know, as Boris Johnson, you mm. can't just sort of sit there and announce mm. a lifetime skills mm. guarantee and then just expect this sort of sector to sprout up and to have well-paid people yeah. willing to train all these adults sort of already there. So I think that the fact that it is a pretty poorly paid, mm. quite insecure, you know, sort of little bits of funding becoming available mm. type of sector does create a real problem. Yeah. So, Tom, I want to come back to Howard's point a bit about the people who need to understand the system. In my house, I don't actually get to choose the energy system which I'm going to be part of, though maybe I do in Howell's world, but I don't think I, I don't think I do, and actually I don't particularly want to. I just want to know what my options are and which one I should take. Um, but if we look at the people who are making the decisions, so people in government, yeah. uh, ministers and civil servants, this has already alluded to perhaps their lack of attendance at Imperial College, um, <laughs> Uh, and the fact they all went to Oxford and DPPE or history or classics or something like that. Um, yeah, all very good degrees in their own way. Um, do we actually have the right you know, 
right structures and capabilities to make decisions about these sorts of decisions in government to understand these things, do you think? You know, do mm. they understand systems enough? Do they understand engineering capabilities? No, I don't think they do. I mean, you and I have written a report which... Um, <laughs> points, <laughs> points, <laughs> points, <laughs> points <laughs> uh, I think, you know, there is a real paucity of, of engineering skills in government was one of the you know, things we identified. And, and actually, you know, we have seen both ministers and officials this kind of dominance of, of kind of arts humanities. <laughs> you know, you get some economics mm. in there. But actually, these people who can think about systems in this way are, are really lacking. I think that's important both for the sort of coordination point. So you mm. can look at the Council on Science and Technology and the way they've called for a sort of systems mm. approach to net zero, understanding that actually all these different sectors are mm. interacting with mm. one another and, and needing a view. But also, like you're saying, for understanding mm. how to make policy on something quite complex mm. like how to have a low-carbon mm. home and, and what sort of policy incentives are needed to support people. When you look at it from the consumer mm. end, I think, personally, I think you're right. I don't think most consumers mm. need to be worrying about exactly what, you know, uh, rates of performance mm. for this type of low-carbon low heating product versus mm. that low-carbon heating product. What they want is really good advice about how to have their home as warm as they want it for an affordable price and mm. not to have too disruptive a process to get there. Um, and I think that's where it comes back to some mm. of the, the other things we've been talking mm. about, like sort of really solid mm. energy advice and consumer advice mm. and consumer protection. And Alyssa, if you're looking at government, I mean, you know, we're not going to change out the entire cadre. I mean, we might cut 91,000 civil service jobs, as Jacob Rees-Mogg wants, um, like you stymie the entry of new skills rather than encourage it, but in the short run. But, you know, actually, how does government position itself to make some of what Boris Johnson might call these big calls on net zero in the next couple of years right? What sort of, you know, advice, external thinking do they need to be tapping into? Um, well, as you said, coincidentally today, the Committee on Climate Change published mm. its progress report. The Committee on Climate Change is just such an excellent organization. Mm. Um, and they are set up as the independent government advisor. They are analytically hugely strong. They are very impressive. Mm. They have done, I mean, they've provided thousands of pages of really good analysis. So I think read it yeah. <laughs> and then do it, I would say. Okay. Um, but I think, I think also some of these things about asking that the people who are making decisions mm. understand systems and mm. all of that. I, not everybody needs to have a kind of a, mm. a very high level degree mm. in each of these topics. Mm. What they do need to do is understand what they don't know mm. and occasionally get quite an inspiring talk by somebody who mm. knows it. Because I think most of the people who work in the civil service that I've come into contact with mm. are highly, highly intelligent, critically analytical people. Mm. Um, and so exposing them to an understanding, here's what the system looks like and here are the people who know. Mm. who can help with that. I think, I think that's the kind of thing that needs to happen. Ian, do you think they understand business need? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> We're talking about both politicians and civil service. I think there's often... Um, I would say they understand big business better. Small business they often really struggle with. Um, the, you know, basic things like language... Mm. They, they, we, we have a different vocabulary and that often shows timescales. Mm. We have different timescales. Mm. Financial investment, we think about things slightly mm. differently. Um, so, for example, a, a micro business can't afford a 10-year payoff. You know, it just can't afford it, mm. um, whereas a big business can. And government tends to think in terms of those longer-term mm. payoffs. Micro and small businesses can't. So I think that's an example where if, if we're going to get this right, we need that. Just as an aside, and this is very much a personal mm. view rather than an FSB mm. view, but also I think we've got to be very careful when looking to all of this that we don't just go for replacement solutions. Um, mm. we, you know, we talk about system. We need to look at sometimes overall mm. systems in order to deliver mm. climate change. So it's not just a case of let's switch all our cars mm. from ICE to EV, mm. EVs, but actually how do we change the way we move in this country? Um, and I think that's a harder challenge and really requires people to have that opportunity to big picture think. Sam, any big gaps you see in the decision-making capabilities in government? For Well, what's really interesting, so we talked a bit about the Green mm. Jobs Task Force earlier, and there's a new Green Jobs Delivery Group, which mm. is going to take some forward mm. and make it happen. And what I've been a bit worried about is they've gone, oh, crap, we need loads of STEM people. We need mm. engineers, we need scientists. Mm. And actually what this takes is like some creative people to work out how to join up the dots. Mm. So a very practical example mm. is the people in DfE delivering local skills integration plans and the Post-16 Education mm. Act didn't mention Net Zero once. 
And then it, it just takes a walk across Victoria Street, go and have a chat with people in Bays and think about how these things can work together. It's just having it in civil servants' minds all the time about we have this major national priority, how do I integrate it into all the things I'm doing, not just assume it's another part of government's job. Okay, I'm going to come, we're coming towards the end now. I'm going to merge a couple of questions that I've got. One is, is it helpful at all to think in terms of green jobs or is it just too blanket and sort of fluffy and meaningless and stuff like that? The converse one, and you can say where you are on the spectrum, I'm borrowing from how systems thinking here, um, Aren't all jobs in the future really green jobs? And shouldn't we be thinking like that? So, you know, is it helpful to think about someone said, you know, we talk about green jobs and just allied to climate change, but what about biodiversity, net gain, all these other things we need? Alyssa mentioned sustainable land management. No. So everything green or green is just like sort of vacuous nothing and so it's not helpful. Green Sam. as the jobs that we need to get us to net zero is different to the jobs that you have existing in a net zero world. And that, that's where we need government to be a bit focused on. We need these people to employ them to do the process of decarbonisation. And then when everything's decarbonised, that's your base level and people are just doing their job as they go about it. OK, so a change whatever. Tom? I think that's a really useful distinction yeah. to draw out, actually. And I think there's, it's, it's definitely useful to have the definitional challenge because there is quite a lot of wish-washy talk about green jobs as a, just a sort of fantastic thing. Um, I think the pitch that it should be a broad definition is the right one. So we shouldn't get mm. trapped in thinking this is just wind farm engineers and heat pump installers and, and that kind of narrow mm. band. We should think of the transitional green jobs mm. that we need across the economy much more broadly mm. than that as, you know, what are the skills mm. in the NHS, what are, you know, all of the types of things we've been talking about mm. um, so far today. So I think you need that wide definition mm. i think it then helps so i mean the government's got some targets around this mm. so they're sort of talking about around half a million green jobs mm. created by the end of the decade and what do they mean do they mean in the specific are they the transition they jobs? haven't said oh, yeah. <laughs> particularly <laughs> clearly yet so in, in net zero strategy you had a bit of language in there it's one of the things Most we might actually, right we right. might hope is going to be in this green skills mm. action plan that that uh, the the group that sam mentioned is meant mm. to be writing um so I think if you have that wide definition, you can, you, but you can sort of be clear about what you're talking mm. about and then start to measure it, I think it can be a, a reasonably useful concept. But I think it, it is worth keeping in mind that it is, it's a broad category. Ian, does any of this speak to any of your members at all? Or? Yeah, I mean, I, I would so, say there is yeah. a danger that we just... We, we call jobs green, but actually what we're talking about, as we've been alluded to several times, we're talking about skills plus. Mm. We're talking about these are skills, mm. a lot of them are skills that people have already got. Mm. We just need to have add some knowledge and perhaps some additional technical skill mm. to allow them to deliver that mm. in a different way. One of the key things that we talked a lot about skills, but is knowledge. So how do we give people the understanding mm. and the knowledge that they need to say, ah, oh, I need to apply my skill in this way, in this to, to deliver a different way of doing business and a different way of looking after my home and a different way of doing this. So how do we not just reskill but re-knowledge people and inspire them into a new way of thinking? I've never heard about re-knowledging before. I rather like re-knowledging. <laughs> Alyssa, last, uh, last word to you. Actually, when we sort of, you know, we've got the long transition, we've then got the final result, you know, screen then sort of wither away. Because it's funny because I, I think I was going to make the point that that, quest present, that the question asked, that I, I don't think there will be such a thing as a green job. I mean, I'll take it from a different angle, from a kind of communications mm. angle, mm. bringing people on board. So I think from a perspective of people like us, who may be a bit, not to insult anyone here, or mm. a compliment, technocratic <laughs> uh, policy wonks, um, then talking about green skills makes sense because we see a challenge, we're trying to fi figure out what's needed to make mm. something happen and mobilize it. So that makes sense. We want to define it and make it happen. But I think that, for me, the reason why um, people talk about green jobs a lot is because traditionally, if you think 20 or 30 years ago, mm. doing something in a green way would be associated in making a loss. Mm. And it's been the, the mm. introduction of the idea of green skills mm. and green jobs mm. is basically introducing people to the idea that a greener, cleaner future is one that's economically prosperous. Mm. So the more that you link green to jobs or green mm. to skills mm. makes people feel really positive about that future mm. vision. That's great when it does that. W what my concern is that there are some people who hear the word green and they think that's not for me. 
So they might hear the word green and they might go, I, I don't want a green job. Mm-hmm. I, I feel really comfortable in the construction mm-hmm. sector. That's my identity. Mm-hmm. What's a green construction sector? That's mm-hmm. the identity of a liberal elite sitting <laughs> in Carlton Gardens. So, so I actually think we should be cautious about labeling things too much as green skills or green jobs. We need to think about how that works as a communication device. Mm-hmm. And I also am worried about the cowboys, the poor educators out mm-hmm. there, if those people go off and label mm. lots of things as green skills and green jobs and they're terrible quality jobs mm. or they're terrible training and so on, all people are going to remember is, oh, this green stuff is rubbish. Yeah. So let's go for good quality jobs that deliver the future vision we want. Okay, that's, I think, a fantastic point on which to end. So I just want to end by thanking all of you for coming. Thanks to everybody who's been watching. Thanks in particular to my fantastic panel, Sam, Ian, Tom, and Alyssa. And I just wanted to do a couple of trailers before you go. So next week, and again in partnership with Imperial College, uh, Colleges Forum, we are doing a green, no, a climate change data bites, where we're going to learn about, uh, about climate data with people from the Met Office, people from Office for National Statistics who've developed a climate change data portals so that's going to be really fun with our colleague Gavin Freegard because whatever happens here Gavin's prepared to green himself in order to have a green data bites rather than anyone from IMG's net zero team anywhere near it because uh, he knows his brand and then on the 18th of July we're back again for the final one in this series partnering with Imperial but this time it's going to be on modelling And we have the modeler supreme, Neil Ferguson, coming to talk to us. That's not about climate, but obviously modeling is a very big issue when you're looking at climate science and climate futures. And with all of that, can I just ask you to thank the the panel and thank you all very much. Thank you for listening and we hope you've enjoyed this edition of IFG Live. Please do subscribe to hear more. And if you'd like to know about our upcoming events, please visit instituteforgovernment.org.uk slash events.